Hi, ladies. My name is Wendy McGinnis, and I have the privilege of sharing some key lessons from the book of Malachi. Yes, you heard me correctly. Malachi. While it's not necessarily one of the most popular books studied and discussed in weekly sermons or podcasts, it's included in the Bible, which makes it worthy of our attention. If I'm transparent, Habakkuk, Haggai, and Malachi weren't books in my Bible that were underlined or tear-stained. Before this past month, there weren't any underlined verses or notes scribbled in the margins of those Old Testament pages. I haven't intentionally ignored these books, but I'm simply more drawn to the New Testament and Old Testament passages that have easily identifiable and applicable lessons. But as I studied, I quickly realized that these books are full of truths that apply to our lives today. So if you're new to Malachi, join my club and be amazed at what we can learn. Can I go on a brief tangent about these once crisp, spotless pages of my Bible? A few weeks ago, I began preparing for this podcast and needed some uninterrupted time to focus and study. So I dropped my daughter off at soccer and headed to the nearest Chick-fil-A for some free Wi-Fi, air conditioning, fries, and of course, a cherry Coke. I sat down, situated my fries in a variety of sauces, and got to typing. Two minutes later, this guy in the booth behind me started tapping his foot incessantly, which caused my adjoined booth to shake at Richter scale proportions. I contemplated possible solutions to this problem. A, tap my leg aggressively to send an unspoken message. B, ask him politely to refrain from gyrating the connected booth. Or C, be a virtuous and mature lady and move my stuff. You'll be proud to know that I went with option C. Well, it turns out that that was a catastrophic error on my part because as I moved my Bible and open sauces, I spilled precious Polynesian sauce all over my beautiful, pristine pages of Malachi. Needless to say, my newly orange-hued pages now deliver a tantalizing scent of Chick-fil-A deliciousness. I'm now drawn to these pages of scripture in a whole new way. But enough about that, let's get to business. I've entitled this podcast, The Messages We Don't Want to Hear. In Malachi 2 and 3, Malachi and God take turns addressing a few areas where people aren't living up to the standards God has set for them. Basically, they think they know better than God. Per usual, man is wayward, selfish, and prideful, which leads them to live in a way that goes against God's design. Consequently, and unfortunately for them, they are in need of a few messages that they probably don't want to hear. Before we get into the specifics of our passage, let's quickly chat about the book of Malachi. You may have heard people reference this book as a minor prophet book of the Bible. What does that even mean? Minor in what way? It certainly doesn't sound like a compliment. Minor usually means lesser in importance, seriousness, or significance. So it's understandable to believe minor prophets are less valuable than the major prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. But that's not the case. As a mini-review, there are 12 minor prophet books in all. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. The word minor in this case refers to length. The minor prophets are comparatively shorter in length, but not less in importance. The major and minor prophets are collectively known in the Hebrew Bible as the latter prophets, or writing prophets, because they authored their own works. The book of Malachi is the last prophetic message from God before the close of the Old Testament period. As we learned in our last lesson and podcast, Malachi reminds us that we have a loving, gracious, and holy God who has unchanging and glorious purposes for his people. Despite the pride, wayward nature, and selfishness of his people, God continues to call them and us, to genuine worship, loyalty to him and others, and hopefully faith in what he's currently doing and will do in this world. 
The name of the author Malachi means my messenger, and boy is Malachi a messenger. Some may argue that he delivered some messages that people didn't want to hear. This book is the prophetic word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. His message applied to the people then, and I think you will find it applicable now. I want to encourage you to pause this podcast and either read or listen to Malachi chapters 2 and 3 for context, and then come back to me. Here's a minor prophet pro tip that helped me better understand these more complicated books of the Bible. Read or listen to the same passage in multiple translations. If you are using the Bible app, listen to the text in the New Living Translation, the Message Translation, or the International Version. Different translations, while similar, can help you better understand the meaning and application of the passages. Sometimes a different translation will convey the meaning of the text in such a way that you will have this aha moment and really see the biblical author's meaning in a new, fresh way. Some versions will translate the scripture very literally and could be harder to understand, while others may use paraphrasing to help the reader gain better insight. So check out a few different translations and see if one resonates more than another. In Malachi 1, we read about the disobedience of the priests. The priests were presenting defiled food on the altar. They were allowing people to bring stolen, blind, lame, and sick animals for sacrifice rather than the unblemished animals required. In the Old Testament, God required a perfect animal sacrifice for his people as a propitiation for their sins. God didn't need their sacrifice. He simply wanted to mold their hearts and wills toward him. In our passage, the people were following the general instruction to offer a sacrifice, but they were offering animals that were less valuable to them. The priests and people wanted favor from the Lord without obeying his specific instructions. Were they tricking God? No. They were shortchanging themselves by bringing less than their best. Basically, they wanted the blessings and the rewards, but without the effort, sacrifice, and commitment. Does that hit you like it hit me? As we move into our main passage, beginning in Malachi 2, we read a warning to the leaders of the day, the priests. The Christian Standard Translation says, Therefore, This decree is for you, priests. If you don't listen and if you don't take heart to honor my name, says the Lord of armies, I will send you a curse among you and I will curse your blessings. In fact, I have already begun to curse them because you are not taking it to heart. For context, the priests were the messengers and the go-betweens or the intermediaries of God in Israel. Their job was to present the people to God, but more importantly, they were responsible for presenting God to the people by teaching them and holding them accountable to the laws of Moses. In this passage, God is sending a message that the priests don't want to hear. He exposes an area where they fall short of his standard. He continues to call them out in verses 7 and 8 and declares, For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should desire instruction from his mouth, because he is a messenger of the Lord of armies. You, on the other hand, have turned from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have violated the covenants of Levi, said the Lord of armies. So I, in turn, have made you despised and humiliated before all the people because you are not keeping my ways, but are showing partiality in your instructions. The priests who were supposed to honor God's name were disgracing it before the people and the Lord by accepting unclean sacrifices, by allowing people to cheat on their vows, and by despising the very privilege of their priesthood. You may be wondering, why would they accept these defiled sacrifices on the altar? Why not hold people to the high standard of a pure and holy sacrifice? Why let them bring less than their best? The law, after all, clearly stated in Leviticus 22.20 to not bring anything with a defect because it will not be accepted on your behalf. Well, the reason was twofold. Warren Wearsby said it well. The priests themselves weren't giving God their best, so why would they make greater demands on the people? Like people, like priests, for no ministry rises any higher than its leaders. 
Furthermore, the priests and their families were fed off the altar, and they wanted to be sure to stay fed. Ultimately, they lost sight of their true purpose and responsibility because selfishness and self-preservation took priority. Serving at the altar became a job and not a ministry to the priests, so they lowered their standards and accepted less than people's best to meet their own needs. They let their selfish interest and desire to win favor from man trump their desire to obey and glorify God. Their leadership, or I should say lack of leadership, not only impacted their decision-making, but that of those they instructed as well. They were causing the people entrusted to them to stumble and disobey God's instruction. The message the priest didn't want to hear may also be a message we don't want to hear. When we love ourselves and our own ways more than we love God, we lead from a place of deficiency. This passage shows the critical role of spiritual authority. Leadership matters whether you have a title or not. You don't have to be a priest to have influence. When we know God's standards, we are held accountable to live it out and be an example. What we do say and believe trickles down to others. Whether they are children, peers, family members, or friends, we influence simply by being. As believers, we are called by God to shine brightly for Jesus and to point them in his direction. Someone is always watching. Matthew 5, 14 through 16 says, You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that you may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. A quick side note before we move on. Have you noticed the repetition of God's name, the Lord of Armies? This name most frequently appears in the Minor Prophets, especially in Malachi, where almost half of the verses in the book contain this name in some form. During the time of the prophets, the people of God were living in exile in Babylon. They faced daily reminders of the presence and power of the enemy armies keeping them in captivity. They called out to God as the Lord of Armies, whose vast angelic armies could deliver them from trouble. Lord of Armies is a name that assures us of the power of our mighty God. Sometimes the power of God is delivered in the form of discipline, as it was with the priests. Conviction and discipline should not cause us to lose heart and grow weary. Instead, it should cause us to look to God, remember we are His children, and strive to follow His ways. Because we're human, we will be in constant battle with sin. We are prone to pride, laziness, and selfishness, so we need to pray daily to receive God's peaceful fruit of righteousness. The Lord of Armies is ready and waiting for us to call on Him for support in our daily battles. As we jump into the next message they didn't want to hear, this message is directed at all of Judah regarding marriage. At the beginning of verse 10, the narration switches from the Lord back to Malachi, and he has a word for the people of Judah. Marriage is a holy covenant that is important to God. In verses 10 through 16, Malachi addresses the Jewish men who have divorced their Jewish wives and instead married pagan women. In doing so, they broke their vows to God and their wives. In Deuteronomy 7, God clearly outlines the requirements for marriage, so there should have been no confusion that he desired for their marriages to be spiritually aligned. In Malachi 2.16, God clearly states that he hates divorce. The main lesson of this passage is that marriage unites a man and a woman into one flesh, and God is a part of that union. The verse we often hear at weddings that reinforces this point is Ecclesiastes 4.12. An enemy might defeat one person, but two people together can defend themselves. A rope that is woven of three strings is hard to break. God is the third strand in a Christian marriage. God loves the institution of marriage for many reasons, and Satan hates it for the very same reasons. 
God loves marriage for what it displays about his relationship with us, for the good it does in society, and for the way it meets the needs of men, women, and children, and as a tool for conforming his people into the image of God. So when the people started breaking their marriage vows and taking God's gift of marriage lightly, Malachi was compelled to warn the people. In this particular passage, the people married the daughters of a foreign god. This meant that the men were marrying foreign women who worshipped pagan gods. If you're wondering, why was God so upset by this religious intermarrying? Let's reference a few other examples in scripture that started in a similar way and had detrimental results. In Numbers 25, men of the tribe of Israel married women from Moab and brought the curse of God upon the people. In 1 Kings 11, Solomon married a foreign woman who took his heart away from God. In 1 Kings 16, Ahab married Jezebel, a foreign woman given over to pagan gods who eventually led Israel into new depths of depravity. These are just a few examples in the Bible where pagan women led their husbands into idolatry and profaning God's temple. Obviously, these men had free will and played their own role in the downfall, but as 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, bad company ruins good morals. By marrying foreign wives, they were also bringing false gods into God's sanctuary. When they did this, the men of Judah endangered the whole community of God, not just their family. Even more significantly, they were harming their relationship with God himself. This became a slippery soap that allowed the acceptance of false gods to grow and their hearts to harden toward the one true God. The message we may not want to hear from this lesson is that problems in relationships can often be the source of disunity within God's people. Our commentary says it well. Malachi gave the people of Judah two examples of this, and these situations still exist today. One, the disruption follows when believers marry unbelievers, and two, when believers divorce. This is not to say that God cannot redeem a marriage in which one person is a believer and one person is not, nor is it to say that there is never a reason for divorce. However, scripture is clear that severing the union of a marriage, even if sometimes necessary, always leads to pain and brokenness. If you're single, take this instruction to heart. God designed marriage to be between two spiritually aligned people. In 2 Corinthians 6, 11-18, Paul says that believers and unbelievers should not be joined together. Who we spend time with influences our beliefs and behavior. If you marry a non-believing spouse, there is a good chance your convictions will waver regarding God, his instruction, and your ministry. You may begin to slowly entertain the differing beliefs of your spouse or even compromise in belief and behavior, not because you don't love God, but rather because opposition exists. So if you're single, choose your partner wisely and with this in mind. If you're already married to a non-believer, trust that God can use you to minister to your unbelieving spouse. Lee Strobel, a once atheist turned Christian, wrote a book called Surviving a Spiritual Mismatch in Marriage. If you find yourself in a spiritually mismatched marriage, here are a few tips from his book. Number one, make your spouse the number one human being in your life. Love them as a partner, not as a project. Two, resist focusing on your spouse's unbelief. Three, pursue a Christian marriage by living out godly principles in your life. And four, teach your kids Christian values, but don't turn them against your spouse. A question he encourages us to ask ourselves is, how would I like to be married to me? Matthew 7, 12 says, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. If you are the only Christian your spouse ever sees, would they want what you have based on how you live? Now that's a question for all of us, whether our spouse loves Jesus or not. Let's move on to the last message the people didn't want to hear in our passage. It regards tithing. 
Malachi 3, 7 says, Since the days of your father you have turned from my statutes, you have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of armies. It goes on to explain that they have been robbing God of what is rightfully his. Verse 8 says, By not making the payments of the tenth and the contributions, you are suffering under a curse. Yet you, the whole nation, are robbing me. Bring the full tenth into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this way, says the Lord of armies. See if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure. In other words, they were robbing God of what was rightfully his. At that time, the needs of the priests and the Levites were met by the 10% tithe from the people. The word tithe literally means tenth in Hebrew. This tithe was intended to support the ministry, but also as a form of worship to God for his provision for their individual needs. Leviticus 27.30 says, A tenth of the produce of the land, whether grain or fruit, is the Lord's and is holy. And Proverbs 3.9 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. We've likely all heard sermons on tithing, and for some reason, when the topic comes up, a little apprehension or uneasiness can creep into our spirit. Did this suddenly become a message you didn't want to hear? When reading this passage and preparing for the podcast, I asked myself, why is tithing such a sensitive topic? I think it's because tithing is a sacrifice. When you work hard at something and you're compensated with a wage, you tell yourself you earned your payment and you deserve it. But in reality, everything that we have, including our jobs, is given to us by God, and tithing is simply an exercise in worship and trust. Years ago, I heard something that really stuck with me regarding money and blessings. In a sermon, the pastor said, All that you have is really on loan to you from God. It doesn't belong to you. Are you going to hold it with a tight fist or an open hand? Embarrassingly, I haven't always been figuratively open-handed. My husband Matt and I got married when we were babies. Within months of college graduation, we got married, I got my first big girl job, and we moved into our little apartment. And because Matt was going to dental school and ortho school, I was solely responsible for supporting our little family of two. I felt immense pressure and stress with this responsibility and fought daily fear and doubt as to how I was going to provide for all of our needs. But God. I did my part and worked hard, but God did the providing. We lived within our means, made responsible choices, and I settled into my little role as our temporary breadwinner. Then the tithing conversation happened. The thought of giving 10% of my hard-earned income to the church felt overwhelming and not exactly what I wanted to include on our budget line items. But we did it. Luckily, Matt was committed to following God's instruction and design in this category, and we tithed our portion and made that a habit from the early days of our marriage. Was I always joyful and open-handed as we made that monthly decision? Sadly, no. And as a result, I missed out on the joy, blessing, and freedom mentioned in our text. Tithing doesn't earn us favor or love from God. It's for our own benefit, not His. He doesn't need our money to accomplish his purposes, but he's pleased when we trust and rely on him to meet our needs. The cherry on top is that giving makes us more aware of the needs of others and makes us more outward focused. 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says it best, Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. The lesson I learned in our early years of marriage is one that we need to repeatedly apply. Our worldly possessions are temporary, and our self-sufficiency is a liar. When we give freely and joyfully to the Lord, we remember our true purpose and identity. C.S. Lewis said it best, nothing that you have not given away will ever really be yours. Today's passage includes a lot of conviction, correction, and discipline. There's a quote that says, the truth can set you free, but first it will make you miserable. 
It can be hard to initially hear areas where we fall short or have made mistakes, but the good news about God is he offers help and hope. He doesn't leave us without instruction. He provides clear direction in his word and the Holy Spirit to equip us to live it out. He gives us hope. At the end of chapter 3, Malachi tells us that the Lord has a book of remembrance that includes the names of all those who fear the Lord. He will remain faithful to them and offer compassion on them because he loves them as his children. Now that's a message we all want to hear.